Hey everybody, here we are at the beginning of season two of My Youth on Record. We've already wrapped the season, which is unbelievable to us because this was a brainchild uh, a couple years ago, and we're very fortunate to be starting on season two. Uh, as you know, if you've been here before, we talk about the early inspirations and the creation of music at an early age. We've had a lot of great interviews already, and we feel like we're just getting started. So we are definitely going to take you on a journey, go back in time, find out where these people were inspired, what caused them to believe that they could be professionals, and we're going to have a lot of fun doing it. So please, do us a favor, hit subscribe, and join us right now for our interview with Jade Simmons. I do see uh, young kids having to make a choice way too soon, way too soon. But the narrative was choose or fail. And um, for whatever reason, I never really believed it. And my parents were never the ones to say that to me. Welcome to My Youth on Record, a podcast where musicians share the music they created as teens and the stories behind their songs. My name is Mona, and I'm super excited to be joining Sean King as your co-host for another season of My Youth on Record. With us today is our new friend Jade Simmons, an artist who is well-known in classical circles and who rose to popular acclaim at South by Southwest when she debuted her groundbreaking Black Beethoven set, when she fused together classical piano, hip-hop, and electronic beats. Jade's musical talents and authentic voice have inspired millions, and she shared her wisdom today about her early life as a budding artist and how she made the choice to believe that she is limitless. Well, here we are in Denver with Jade Simmons. We want to just say thank you so much for being here today. I, I want to say to clear the air, I'm I'm a little embarrassed by reading all the stuff about you this week oh. and seeing how see how busy you are, <laughs> how little I'm doing. Oh no, not at all, not at all. Uh, you're you're an entrepreneur, classic pianist, uh, uh, and, and motivational speaker, mm-hmm. activist. Um, so we're really we're really happy to to talk to you today. Thank and, you for having me. I'm honored. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mona, I think you had a a question to kind of start things off with Jade. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Well, first of all, um, so a majority of interviews that we do on this podcast so far mm-hmm. have been um, a lot of males. And so hmm. uh, I think that's also super reflective of like the music industry itself. Sure, of course. Um, which is why I know myself and the team are like super happy to be uh, speaking with you today. Um, and with that said... Um, tell us about Jade as a young musician, specifically as a teen. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I started playing piano, at least in the world of classical music, very late. So it wasn't until about eight years old when I had my first lesson. My mother also plays piano, but she has the wonderful gift that I didn't inherit of playing by ear. And she would play gospel and uh, she was a church musician. So I always would be with her at church and watch her play. But by the time I went to my first piano lesson, you know, I had all this amazing music in my head. And so I thought, you know, after that first lesson, I would leave sounding like Beethoven himself, you know. And so, you know, that story, you end up playing those 
awful little finger exercises and, you know, having to learn all the basics. So the the early years for me um, were frustrating in that first year or two because I had music in my head that my fingers weren't ready yet to play. So by the time I was probably 12, 13, um, I had zoomed along and was really just ripping up repertoire and playing tons of awesome music by tons of amazing composers. So I remember very fondly the early years after that because my parents allowed me to practice as much as I want as I wanted. They didn't have to make me practice. And I played multiple instruments. I was clarinet, viola, uh, but piano was the instrument that stuck. So I think I knew very early on that I wanted to make a career uh, as a musician and that it would be the piano. Nice. Mm -hmm. And then that was, like, um, were you as a teenager in, like, concerts, recitals? Yeah, so I was your typical... American overscheduled kid, right? I played three different sports, basketball, volleyball. I ran track. I played four or five instruments. I was in the marching band. Eventually I was the um, in the drum line. Then I was the drum major. I went to college and majored in music, but I moonlighted in a percussion and dance ensemble that I founded called Boom Shaka with another, another a drummer. And um, I was always torn between these multiple musical worlds. I mean, even as a, as a young, my, my parents had me in ballet, but they also had me in African dancing simultaneously. You know, so I was always kind of living this cross-cultural artistic life. And to my father as well, the arts was, I mean, it's extremely important that that would be a part of my upbringing. Uh, so I did a little bit of everything. And so it really is kind of miraculous that the piano, which is where I started, lasted you know, it was the through thread. Uh, and even up until now, my relationship with the instrument has kind of evolved and changed. And I think what I initially expected or what I imagined my career as a classical concert pianist would be is night and day from what I'm actually doing today. Uh, but I like it that way. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. One of my questions later down the line was if you had ever had to choose between music or other things <sighs> like people or... Um, or, you know, sports, because that was my experience. Yeah. You know, it's the story of my life, right? Having to make those choices. And then I'd say in the last eight years, I finally said I'm no longer choosing. That whatever I choose to do is simply the vehicle for my purpose. That my purpose is not to be a pianist. It's to activate other people into being a bigger, bolder version of themselves. The one that I believe God created them to be. And if I had the opportunity to do that through piano, I'd say yes. If I could do it through um, speaking, I would say yes. And I had to believe that if I had been given multiple gifts, then it would be a sin to sideline any of them. And so my career as it is today is the kind of amalgamation of figuring out where all those talents go, how they fit, and what's the through thread. Uh, so... I get it. You know, we multi-talented, multi-faceted people are often forced into choosing. And so now my answer is always choose purpose and then use those gifts and talents around purpose mm -hmm. uh, to still be able to operate in all of your gifts and talents. Yeah, that is super awesome that you've <laughs> decided that. Um, what was the narrative when you were a teenager? Oh, man. You have you're you're going to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. You are biting off more than you can chew. 
eventually you're going to have to make a choice. You can only pick one. You can only pick one instrument or you can only do sports or uh, play music. And now I live in Texas now. I'm originally from Charleston, South Carolina. And in that state, because sports is so dominant, I do see uh, young kids having to make a choice way too soon, way too soon. But the narrative was choose or fail. And um, for whatever reason, I never really believed it. And my parents were never the ones to say that to me. That is, I think, uh, the reason I'm able to be standing before you today, because I had parents who didn't believe I had to choose. So we ignored a lot of great advice, I'm sure. Uh, but I will say there was there was one instance where I went to a very fancy um, classical music, classical piano camp at Indiana University. And I was studying with some of the most amazing names in classical music. And that's when, you know, you were the big fish in the little pond and you get somewhere and everybody's awesome. Well, everybody was awesome times 100. And uh, very recently, my high school teacher showed me a letter that she'd received after I'd attended the camp. And the letter said, we think Jade is very talented, but she's going to have to choose or she will never have a career in this industry. And she only showed that to me after I had a career in the industry because uh, she didn't want it to break my spirit. Did you think that was the catalyst moment where you said now, can you pinpoint it to that moment where you said I'm going to Confirmation. You know, it was like you you see something like that that you didn't know even happened. You didn't know that there was a declaration made over your life that no one asked you about or that people had cast a lot for you and you had no say in it, but you continued to follow purpose, destiny, and you still ended up where they said you weren't supposed to end up. It's a very powerful movement, and I think... When she told me that all these years back, uh, it was like, okay, I'm not crazy. This is a thing, and I can keep moving in this direction. Uh, and I will say, you make choices, right? You don't have to choose one thing, but you'll decide which season am I in? Is this the season where performance is at the forefront? Or is this the season where speaking or ministry or writing is at the forefront? And I think the smart, multi-talented person learns to discern what season he or she's in. And then they use their gifts accordingly. And that gift will be most powerful in the season it's designed uh, to really yield fruit in. Mm. Yeah. That speaks. Uh, I feel that. Deeply. Yeah, good. I'm good, so good, happy good. you said that. <laughs> I, I think we both do. And Mona and I are, are in two different seasons. I think yeah. it's, it's fair to say. But yeah. Well, it's like when you were you know, saying earlier, you'll read someone's resume and you go, God, what have I been doing with my life, you know, while there, you feel like a slacker sometimes. I'll read other people's resumes going, oh my gosh, I haven't won the Pulitzer yet. What's wrong <laughs> with me, you know? But I'm starting, you know, comparison can really be the death of an artist for sure. And I'm starting to really understand. I, I heard a minister say very recently, uh, Joyce Myers, this is a, a female evangelist that I love to follow. And she said, you know, God gave us each multiple gifts, not so we would be jealous of each other but that so we would be blessed by what each other had to offer. I was just like, oh, you know, first of all, forgive me for ever being jealous. And then now can I just look to receive and be inspired by gifts that other people have that I don't and be inspired by their journey, uh, not so that I can replicate or want their journey, but that I can be more satisfied in mine and trust that Mona's watching, right? And she's going to see me do something that doesn't make her want to be like me, but makes her want to be more of herself. Like, I tell you what, it changes everything when you can look from that perspective. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Jade knows better than most how defining one's music education can be, and how the wrong approach can turn a young person off to music forever. For Jade, it was a female teacher who encouraged her to get off script after years of being asked to play by the rules, and that permission changed her life. And so, kind of to go back to what you, you had mentioned this teacher mm -hmm. that brought you this note, <laughs> and also this woman who's just said this quote, um, what were, who were some influential teachers in okay. your teen years? I, I was telling Jamie before we got on, on the air here about um, some teacher experiences, because she was saying that, you know, Youth on Record is looking to do more with teaching teachers, which I think is crucial. Um, I hate to put pressure on all the music teachers out there, but you guys shape what each artist believes will be the possibility for their art. And so my first two teachers, I started late, as I told you, you know, the first guy broke out one of these John Thompson piano books, level one, and I was stuck on like middle C for an eternity. And I begged him to move on and he wouldn't let me move on. And I learned the whole book and brought it back to the second lesson. And he was like, no, Jade, we've got to go one page at a time. And uh, that he was, was torture. He was trying to keep a job. He, he was trying to keep his job, right? Because <laughs> I'd be there forever, going one page at a time. He was also, that's all he knew. That was how you taught piano, one page at a time. He totally disregarded that I was this eager beaver who was like, I just want to play some music. And so exploration was not a part of those early years. And uh, I joke about this with every audience. It doesn't sound funny, but it, it ends up being funny. But after about eight or nine months, this guy passed away. Right. So sad occasion. But if I'm being honest, I was a little happy because I'm getting a new piano teacher. So I go to my new teacher. This is still back in Charleston. And this guy's a jazz pianist, a gospel musician and a classical pianist. So I thought I'm going to leave playing Chopin and blues chords. And he broke out like a level two John Thompson piano book and insisted I play page by page. I was it was just I was so demoralized by it. And after about five or six months, he also died. <laughs> so <laughs> I wish the audience could see your faces, right? <laughs> so I go to my third teacher. And, you know, my parents are like, what's up here? Is, is our daughter like the black widow of <laughs> piano students or something? And so I go to the third teacher. I'm probably 10 and a half, 11 at this point. And so now I'm taking my future in my hands here. And I say to her, listen, I got to tell you, these first two guys insisted I play out of these John Thompson books and they were dead within a year. And so she looked at me and she said, Jade, what would you like to play? <laughs> <laughs> and she gave me my first piece of Mozart. And when I tell you, oh, changed everything. Had she done the same thing as the last two guys before her, I would have quit. She I might be dead. Who knows? She, you, know what, you know what? She lived. <laughs> she survived me. And she only passed away recently in the last few years, lived a full life. And the fourth teacher was the one who prepared me for college, uh, believed in my talent, uh, and really got me ready to take this thing seriously. But had it not been for that third teacher, my entire trajectory um, could have been very different. Because I had other interests, right? I would have pursued those instead, most likely. So she was crucial. Nice. And how old were you at this point with her? Probably 10 and a half, 11 by the time. The, so when I got, I worked with her for two years, and then she... Uh, said, you know, I think it's time for you to, to go on to someone who can take you to a higher level. That's another rare quality. 
to have the teacher who's willing to move the student on and say, there's something more for you that I'm not equipped to give you, but here's someone who is. Uh, again, another crucial move, because I think those are the moments when we stay too long in a space that has gotten too small, that we never get to be as big as we were designed to be. Mm -hmm. So for someone else to recognize that is huge. You also said that you've, you've utilized your uniqueness being mm -hmm. a Black woman. Was that third teacher one of the people who, who said that you, you have a choice to make? You know, you know, the third teacher just focused on the music and thought I had something special. The fourth teacher thought that I had something that was at a standout level. She started entering me in competitions and that whole world. It wasn't until I was in that world. You got to understand my upbringing. My father's a civil rights activist. This is still back in Charleston, South Carolina. My mother works in higher education. Uh, even though I'm watching him literally, you know, fight gentrification, um, be a part of, of civil rights history in our city, fight the mayor. He's like our, our former mayor's thorn in his side. For so We had one mayor for 40 years, and my father was the thorn in his side for 40 years. You know what I mean? So to be um, in that kind of an upbringing, the way that my parents raised me was to never see being female or being Black as a disadvantage. So on purpose, my father put me in activities where there were lots of boys, so I was such a tomboy. I was super competitive with boys. I still am today. I love to arm wrestle. We'll have to go after the show. Yes. <laughs> and then, uh, and then uh, they also, being an African-American, uh, my father taught us stuff that we didn't learn in school. So in school, you know, African-American history starts pretty much at slavery. And that's it. But he taught us about kings and queens and who we were before we were slaves. And so that kind of knowledge um, kind of puts you in this wonderful half delusional sphere, which is wonderful, which is you really believe you can do anything. So I was often the first black or the first female doing a lot of things. Um, and I think the danger of that is to not get used to that and to not want that, that when you get somewhere and you're the only one, your first question should be, why are there not more like me here? And then your efforts then should be to attract more people who look like you and have your background and have your experiences to that space because it's it's never supposed to be an exclusive space, which classical music uh, often was. Yeah, mm -hmm. I bet. Was the classical space super competitive? Oh, my gosh. Understatement of the century. I mean, that world is... It's hard. It's a very difficult world, especially because of we're in, in a recording studio because of the invention of recordings. So in the back in the old days, nobody recorded. You just heard everything live. There were blunders. There were mistakes. But because of the editing process, you now are there are pianists who have evolved. They play without mistake. So when your technique has a flaw or has a a blunder if you're having memory slips, sometimes the music quality or what you're able to do emotionally is discounted because the execution was not flawless. So it's a very difficult industry to succeed in. I, I have a question too with you. You talked about the stuff that was maybe, you, you mentioned it to be almost like blasé or too standard for mm -hmm. you, like maybe like Rachmaninoff or something. Did you make a conscious effort to change your practice to be able to do more modern compositions? Do you, do you have to make like an actual shift? That was, that's the irony. I love the music. I love the standard traditional stuff and assume my career would be playing Bach 
Beethoven, Rachmaninoff, and I would have been happy. It wasn't until I started experimenting with my audience because I was still listening to African drumming, Missy Elliott, you know, Jay-Z. So I had these other influences, and but I was living like these two separate lives. Like I have my classical life and then, um, and I would play classical music. And then I got interested in modern classical, which was a little edgier, more atonal, very rhythmic. And rhythm started to be this through thread. And so today my concerts go from uh, Rachmaninoff all the way to rap. So I will do all of that in one concert experience. I call it kind of like the MP3 experience because once people started having MP3s, they had everything on them. So I could start to trust that they were expecting or would enjoy a more varied musical experience. And so I let my audiences begin to inform me when I saw them receiving things like stories um, and other genres, it gave me the courage to continue to reinvent and, and now create my own music, which I would have never done in my early years. You're all in for a treat. Jade Simmons played for us today at the Youth on Record studio, beginning with her favorite song as a young pianist, and then taking us on a musical journey through some of her more melancholy pieces that she's preferred as she's gotten older. Let's listen in. Would you mind playing something that that inspired you as a teen, something that you can take out of the vault for us? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I'll play you a little ditty, the first Mozart that I ever learned, just a few seconds of that so you can see. It's so simple, but uh, for me, every time my fingers touch it, it's like, oh, this was a savior piece of music. And then what I can do is play a little of Rachmaninoff, my favorite composer, just a few bars so you can hear the original, and then I can play for you how I would improvise on something like Rachmaninoff. Is that good? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so here's a Mozart. This is the F major sonata, K332, and this was the first Mozart I ever played. It's the reason I'm still playing. to that, I was in heaven. Uh, But what I really craved was darker, more stormy, passionate music. So that brings us to Rachmaninoff. This is his, probably the most famous piece he's ever written, his C-sharp minor prelude.
So if I were in concert, I would start playing some electronics right about now, and then I would do something more like this. Thank you, Jade. Of course. I had this huge wave of emotion, like, at the very beginning yeah. of uh, the second piece. Of like, course. That's what you want. And I think even as a little girl, uh, that was maybe my super skill. And I don't, I don't know if I really noticed it at first because I was so into the music. Uh, but one of the compliments I would always get is, oh, my gosh, she's so passionate. We can feel things. That she looks like she's enjoying it. And then one of the biggest critiques I always got is, oh my gosh, she's too passionate. She's moving too much at <laughs> the piano, you know? So, and I think it was a, a, a an issue of performance practice in the world of classical music. Um, and so I want to just make sure that I don't sound like I'm demonizing that world because I still love it. I still listen. I still play straight ahead concerts. Um, and I will say, I never felt intentionally like it was an elitist or an exclusive environment. I think there was just a standard of how the music was presented that had been set up. And not a lot of people had challenged that. So when I started to challenge it, what I noticed is the audiences loved it. They didn't go anywhere. Um, but the audiences began to diversify. So whereas when I first started, sometimes I was the only black person in the room. Um, now I have some of the most colorful audiences uh, in the world of classical music. So that's an exciting progression for me to see and have been a part of. Totally. Um, how did you get into creating your own music? sort of a dare. I mean, when I think about it, uh, I always tell audiences when I'm doing the motivational speaking that you have to set an arbitrary deadline to evolve or else you never, you just say, I wish I could do that. One day I would like to do that. Um, and one of the things that happened was I knew I wanted to start playing piano with beats. And so the first thing I did was I found a partner who 
created beats. And so we were such a wonderful odd couple because I was the black female classical pianist and he's this white guy with like, you know, combat boots, goth leather jacket. You know, we were just such an odd pair. And then when we came on stage, we were both still doing not what people were expecting. You know, you'd think he'd be in the metal, which he was, but here he is dropping out these amazing hip hop beats. And then the black girls on piano playing Rachmaninoff, right? So he would create beats to go along with what I was doing. But it wasn't until 2014 when I got accepted to the South by Southwest Festival. Uh, they don't really have classical musicians. And so on my application, I can say this now because it's already happened. I told them, look, if you select me, I'm going to play piano, make my own beats and rap on top of it. And I'm like, there's no way they're going to say no. And of course they said yes. But the catch was I hadn't done any of those things at that point. I'd only played classical recitals with a guy on stage who made beats. So I literally, in record time, had to find uh, equipment. I have these awesome Korg keyboards, uh, Korg uh, mini synthesizers, I should say, with like bass, beats, and keyboard. Uh, and then I had to try rapping. I had done it before. I'd recorded one song. I have kids, my husband and I, and I would do on-the-spot nursery rhymes for them. So I thought, you know, I'm a rap. Like, at the end of the day, I'm the same as Jay-Z. Like, I'm totally the same. <laughs> And so I wrote a rap called Black Beethoven for South by Southwest and did what I said. I played piano, brought in the beats on top, and then rapped on top of it. And uh, one of the journalists named it one of the best performances at South by that year. And I say that to every audience, even my, you know, I, I've, today I'm speaking to a room full of financial advisors, and they will see me rap before the day's over. But the idea is that there's something magical that happens when we bring all of ourselves to every single table, every single time. And so that recognition came because I was no longer being parts of myself in different spaces. I was daring to be all of Jade in one space and trusting that there were people in the audience who were designed to receive from that experience. It was a really powerful one for me. I love that. What do you think that 19-year-old Jade would think of of you rapping and doing beats and just your career in general? 19-year-old Jade still wanted very much to just be a Rachmaninoff specialist, wear evening gowns and play in just the finest halls. She would have looked at me and thought, that chick is cool. But she wouldn't have thought there was a pathway from there to where I am now. And so I would hope that she would be inspired by the journey and uh, believe that all those different gifts that people had told her she would have to set down at some point, she could pick them back up. And right around 27, 28 is when she finally dared to do that. But I, I, I can't even imagine if we had done it a little bit earlier, you know, where I'd be at this point. But I don't regret it. I think the journey happens how it's supposed to happen. Amazing. Did you have... Any other questions you wanted to ask? No, I just wanted to say thanks for being so inspired and inspiring. And, Thank you. And I think you have great advice that we'll be able to recommend this this show to other musicians. Because I think what you say about being inspired by other people's talents is something yeah. that I just don't see in my hmm. my peer group with artists. I think it's way more, I wouldn't say competitive necessarily, but I do think that people compare yeah. what they're doing to other people and it's mm -hmm. easy to do. And I think it's, I think you have just a fantastic attitude that's obviously brought you a lot of success. So I just has, wanna say thank you. Thank you. I think 
maybe even more important than the success. It's brought me so much joy and happiness. I think when I thought my piano was, my it, my purpose was only to play the piano perfectly. I can't tell you how much anxiety, stress, and depression came with that. Because anytime I didn't play perfectly, I saw myself as less than. So when I stopped comparing myself to all the other perfect pianists and just said, how am I compared to the Jade last week? That changed everything because it stopped me from looking to the left or the right, and I would only look forward. And backwards was never something that would hold me back. It would just inform how I would move forward. So that would be my last piece of advice to compare yourself to who you were yesterday and determine that in six months you will not be the same person you were. That, to me, is the most natural form of evolution and reinvention. I think it's a requirement of, of everyday existence. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I'm, <laughs> I'm excited to listen back on this. I've had a lot of moments of like, oh, yay, art, yay, explosions. <laughs> Good stuff. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jane. My Youth on Record is proudly brought to you by Youth on Record. Colorado nonprofit organization where local teens are empowered to find their voice and value by working with local musicians as their educators. Teens and Youth on Records programs are working to be both the next generation of creatives as well as community leaders. They do this through music, poetry, and storytelling. My Youth on Record is one of their newest programs. Learn more at www.youthonrecord.org. A big shout out to Oso Motley for our theme music this season. They came to the studio in Denver, jammed with some of the Youth on Record students, and we couldn't be happier. Thanks so much.